Well, guys, I've been looking forward to this, um, sharing just some of the things that have, have been on my heart over the last several weeks and, and, and months, and, and as we hit this new year and start dreaming about what is it that God might have in store for us as a people. You know, what, what does God want to do in you? What does God want to do through you? And if we follow that and if we listen to that, what's going to happen, you know, one year from today? What, what is life going to look like? What is this church going to look like? What are you going to look like after God has had his time with you as we seek him together? Just, just a little bit of what I want to start to broach on today as, as we start charting the course for this new year. Um, I, I don't know how your holiday season goes in your home. For the Gadini family, it is a very bipolar affair. And, uh, and by that, what I mean is all through the month of December, it is like this manic rush up until December 26th. And once December 26th hits, it like falls off a cliff. And, and when I talk about this manic rush, I'm not just talking about church life, okay? I'm not just talking about services here and the things that are going on. Um, I'm, I'm talking about home life. You might remember, I think it was a year ago, maybe two years ago, there was a movie came out, I think it was Vince Vaughn and Reese Witherspoon, it was called Four Christmases, and basically the premise of the movie is that they were trying to hit every Christmas celebration of all their divorced parents. Okay, they got nothing on us, because Christmas for us is six gatherings on top of all the church things intertwined and mixed in between, between services. So we start preparing in our home about 10 days before. We start, like, we start practicing and training ourselves through sleep deprivation and, you know, and things like this. We start building up the calorie stores because we know what's going to be in, 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 in store for us. And then the day before Christmas hits and it begins. And it's like, at this hour, we're down in the city, and then we're out to Park Ridge, and then we're out to Fox Lake, and then we're out to Barrington, and then we're back in Hebron, you know, and it just kind of like goes in this circle around the greater Chicagoland area. And, and of course, then the 26th hits, and then we begin the second phase of what's become an annual Christmas tradition in our home, where we, in, in the spirit of Christian charity, um, share disease with each other. And, and, and so this year... It begins the day after Christmas with, with my six-year-old son, Ben, waking up sounding like a 90-year-old man with emphysema. And, you know, then, then Riley begins the projectile vomiting around 3 p.m. And, and, you know, Reagan, of course, has stuff coming out of every orifice. And, and then we just pass it around because that just seems like the right thing to do. And uh, if, if that isn't like a break big enough... We go from this manic rush at Christmas time into this disease-laden week off to a monastery for a week in Kentucky where they practice silence and solitude. And so have you ever felt like you're going like in, 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 in the fifth gear, like five or six on the RPMs and your red line, and then you immediately shift into reverse? Like, like have you ever done that in your car? I wouldn't suggest it. Um, it doesn't go well. And, and that's kind of what Christmas is like for us. We, uh, we were at Christmas number two, if I'm doing the math correctly, which is my dad's side of the family. And it's the extended one. It's down in, in, in the city. And we get together there on Christmas Eve night, more or less. And, and I'd just like to share with you today uh, a conversation that we got into while we were there that really speaks to a lot of what 
I've been thinking for here. Um, I got a chance to sit down with, with my one cousin, and uh, she's about 39. She's really lamenting the whole 40 thing that's coming this coming month, because in her mind, she's not 40. She's 23. And uh, we got a chance to talk to her a bit, but, but before I go there, i got to set a little bit of context. See, she's recently married, and um, shortly after um, that, they had their first child, at, who's about four years old now. Married about five years. Her child's four, and it's this cute little boy, and we look forward to seeing him every year, and getting to play with him and interact with him a little bit at our Christmas Eve celebration. And, and you kind of know how boys are, right? They, they like to gunfight. They like, they like to sword fight. But it was a little odd with him because it seemed to kind of go to a next level. Because what he would do is instead of coming up and going, shoo, 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 you know, and, and shooting, he would go, I want you to kill me. I want to die. Shoot me. And, and at first you're like, oh, okay, bang, <laughs> you, you know? And, and it would have been okay if it stopped there. But this, this was a reoccurring theme throughout the entire night. And it was those exact words. I want you to kill me. I want to die. Okay, does that seem a little off to you? We got talking to his mom later on. Not, not kind of like bringing this up, but she did. And, and see, what happened in her and her family in recent months is they had a few deaths very, very close to each other. And he got to witness them all. You know, it started with my cousin's grandma, his great-grandma. Check this out. 102 years old. 102 and still mentally sound and sharp, but of course the body wasting away. And, and it became apparent to the family shortly before Christmas that uh, she's being called home. You know what those times are like? when you get it and the family starts coming in, right? Because and, and you want to be there. And she wanted to be there. And her husband wanted to be there. But what do you do with your five-year-old? And so he came too. And they got to be there in the room when Grandma went to, went to heaven. And he got to see it firsthand. Someone died before his eyes. It was shortly after that that their dog, you know, that he loved, that had been around since the day he was born, Disease started to rack him, and it was time for him to go on. And as a family, they went to the vet, and together they said goodbye, and the dog died. And within this, this course of just a couple of months, maybe even several weeks, you know, firsthand, this, this five-year-old boy got to see what death was all about. And my cousin was talking to us, going, and you know, I mean, it, it was amazing, and it was awesome, and I'm so glad he was there, but now he's just talking about wanting to die all the time and, and kill me and shoot me and, and other creative way. And it's just like, and, it's, and she's like, and it's kind of the point that it's really starting to worry me. And it's, it's kind of embarrassing even. And like, I don't know what to do about it. And, and, and so you got to understand my cousin. She was raised in a church home. She was raised with church background her entire life. But something happened to her in those junior high and high school years in relation to this thing that we call church that gave her a bitter taste that goes beyond imagination. I mean, something happened to her that, that wounded her so deeply, that burned her so deeply, that turned her so off to this thing that we call church 
that it sent her running as far in the opposite direction as humanly possible. Now, deep inside, don't hear me wrong, there's this consciousness of God. There's this idea of, and I would say even a hunger and a desire for God. But, but that conception of who God is in her mind has been so tainted and poisoned by the ugly side of church that the two have gotten enmeshed in her mind. And so God has become this, this unapproachable, this scary, this dangerous, this I don't know and I don't think I want that kind of thing while all the same time underneath this desire that's churning. Does that make sense? Have you been in that kind of place yourself or do you know someone, maybe a friend or a family member who could kind of resonate with what I'm talking about you know, here today? And so she starts telling Tina about how, you know, she's trying to talk to him and, and, and trying to explain to her son how the circle of life works, but you could tell she's kind of groping in the dark and looking for something deeper to hold on to, to communicate to him. And, and Tina comes in and, and, and she says back, and you, you know, it's, I, I know what you're talking about, you know, with our own kids, when these questions of life and death come up and how do you talk about it? And we, we try to tell them that, you know what? There's going to come a day when Jesus is going to come again. And even though we die now and we had to say goodbye to Papa and we had to say goodbye to Grandma, a day is going to come when Jesus is going to come again. And you know what? They're going to rise from the dead and we get to live with them forever. So even though we die, you know, it's only temporary. And Tina told me it was amazing in that moment because she's sitting here talking to my cousin and there was this look. And he, you don't really know how to describe the look. And yet, it speaks so deeply of, I don't really get what you're saying. I, I, I mean, I'm not really like following the wavelength. And even though your words make sense, I don't get it. Yet at the same time, within that look, and have you ever seen this look in someone's eyes? It's that look of going, but there's something there that I really, really want. There's something there you're talking about and the way that you're talking about it that's speaking to me. But it's like there's all this baggage and roadblock in between. You know what I mean? And I remember leaving Christmas that day. And Tina's telling me the story on the way home. And I remember thinking to myself, I, I, like, I would do anything. I would do anything for there to be a church close to where she lives, that would do everything in its power connect with her. Because in reality, there's not. There just isn't. And, and I remember just kind of leaving, leaving just like almost like crying out and said, God, if, if, if there was just some group of believers that would take an intentional step to reach out to her again and again and again and again and to show her who God really is, and to show her what he's really like, and to show her what church could actually be, it's like, I would, I would do anything for that to happen. Do you, you got a loved one like that? Do you have a friend like that, someone you know, where it's like there's a church on every corner, and yet, God, if just one that would speak her language and connect with the kind of person she is would just reach out. And it got me thinking. You know, I, I bet there's some neighbors of hers who are yearning the exact same way for some of their friends and for some of their loved ones who are living in McHenry County.
I bet there's someone who has a cousin like mine who's sitting there in Chicago right now going, I wish out there in the burbs where my friend has moved, I wish there was a church that would do whatever it would take to speak to them and to connect with them and help them to see who God really is. You know, it's interesting for me when I start to think about the kind of church that I think my cousin would resonate with. You see, it, it, it wouldn't be a megachurch. See, for her, though she would like the quality of what was happening, it would just be too big. And she would feel lost in the crowd. And yet, at the same time, she would have to be at a church that was big enough where she could come in somewhat anonymously. It would have to be big enough that when she showed up, it wouldn't be obvious to all that she was the new guy on the block. She wouldn't want that kind of attention. She wouldn't want to be embarrassed in that kind of way. It would have to be big enough where she could have enough things to get involved in. See, my cousin, when she does stuff, she kind of goes full board. She goes whole hog. See, she wouldn't want to go to something on Sunday morning where they were just playing around. She'd want to see something that was actually making a difference. Where they were serious about it. Where they were like, we seriously think that this stuff is real and we seriously think that it will make a difference in our life and we are going to go after it 100%. She would need that. And she would need to see people who were living that kind of way. Because through all of it, what she would need to see more than anything is something that was real. See, for her, a show, it wouldn't do it. And in Christianese, you know, people just saying the right phrases and talking about the right things. It, it wouldn't do it. And, and people just kind of coming to like play a game on, on, you know, or just kind of do their time or, or flirt with something. Now, that wouldn't be her. It would have to be something that was just authentic at the core and bleeding out its pores. She would see through it from a mile away if it wasn't. And from day one of entering, it would have to look like that. Here's the other thing. For this to ever take place for her, it would only occur if someone was to take a certain special decided interest in her and invite her again and again and again and again. Because see, you know, one phone call wouldn't do it. Shooting an email and just saying, hey, I'd love to come on Sunday. You know what she would answer? Hey, thanks, that's nice. And, you know, think about it. You know what I think about it means, right? It's the equivalent in Christian circles of I'll pray about it. It's get off my back, leave me alone. I'll think about it. It would take someone again and again and again. It would take someone, no, no, no. Okay, I know you couldn't make, come this week. No, this, this, this mom's thing or this, this group I'm in or, or, you know, we got this thing that we do in our home. You got to check. It would take someone, well, basically discipling her. You know what I mean? It would take someone who said, I want to take a special interest in you and helping you come along. See, for my cousin, she would want to be discipled. She would want to go deep. But it would take someone discipling her to make it happen. You know, last fall, we started talking about this idea of this church as being a place that makes disciples, who make disciples, as you being people who become disciples, who call yourself disciples. And within that context, discipling someone else whom God and someone else on this planet loves. 
See that, that, that phrase, make disciples who make disciples? You know what it means? It's nothing more than my cousin Carolyn. That's what it's all about. How do we be that for someone who has a cousin like that living right around here? You know, last week, there was a group of us here from Fellowship of Faith, about eight of us, who traveled down to Kentucky. And, and we spent a week at a Cistercian monastery, just hanging with the monks. And uh, guys, what an incredible experience. See, see let, me, let me tell you a little bit about what life is like in Cistercia. Um, the monks pray seven times a day. What they revolve their entire lives around is gathering together seven times a day to worship and to pray. The first service, I kid you not, 3.15 a.m. in the morning. The church bells start ringing and the monks come to prayer in the dead of the night and they start their day. And guys, it's not like a half hour goes by and then you get to go back to bed because at 5.30 and then 7.30 and then noon and then 2.15 and then 5.30 and then 7.30 every single day. They got this fascinating talk when you get there. They have this little orientation thing you can go to if you want. If you don't, it's up to you. But they talk about how they got started. They talk about how they got there on December 21st of 1848. Let's stop there for a minute. December 21st, 1848. We're talking pre-Civil War, right? With those modes of communication, technology, and transportation, not to mention hygiene and everything else. We're talking the dead of winter, right? And we're talking in what at that point of history is considered the wild frontier. They say we arrived December 21st, 1848, and the next day we began, seven times a day, gathering together to pray, day after day, week after week, year after year, until the end. Now think about it for a minute. If I was leading a group of monks, and we were to arrive in the Kentucky wilderness in the dead of winter, there would be a solid nine months of getting our act in order before we ever started to pray. You know, we got to build facilities. We got we to figure out what we're going to do for food. We got we to start getting this thing in order. But for them, what God had called them to was central. Everything else was commentary. The monks got another interesting thing. They have this phrase that they say, they say, if you depend on people for your livelihood, they tell you how to live. And so from day one, they always strove to be self-sufficient. See, I had always thought of the monastic life as a lazy life. I always thought of it as a quiet, serene, where time does not exist. Let me tell you, I have never seen a more grueling schedule or a more time-conscious people in my entire life. See, what the monks do on the side is they built a business. It started mail order, now it's internet. And what they do is they manufacture cheese, fruitcake, and bourbon fudge. Because it's Kentucky, you've got to put bourbon in it. And they make it, and they sell it, and it's turned into a multi-million dollar internet business. But this is what they do on the side. Likewise, they're on 1,400 acres. 1,400 acres of Kentucky wilderness and what could only be called a castle. And the facilities are immaculate. 
They begin to open it up to people around the country and even around the globe to come and spend a week with them. And when you come, they house you and they feed you and they don't charge you a cent because in the monastic rule of hospitality, if Jesus were to show up, you would welcome him in. Well, that's how we should treat everyone else. But this, too, is something they do on the side. See, what amazed me most about these monks, it's not that they're holier than you or me. It's not that they pray seven times a day and if only I could start living a life like that. No. It's that they knew what they were about and they went after it together. Eight of us got to spend a week with just 40 men, 40 monks, many of whom are past retirement age. And in the process of their calling, they pray for you and for me and the people of this world. They've become a light to people around the nation as they come to just be inspired to go off on retreat, to learn, to, to pray, to find their own time of quietness with God. All the while they employ people in the community, bettering those around them, all the while pouring out generosity onto the poor of those in need and simultaneously making some pretty good cheese and fudge in the process. Here these 40 men, many of whom are retirement age, are sustaining a facility of 1,400 acres with a castle on it, running a multi-million dollar internet business, but that's what they do on the side because they know what God has called them to. And, and, and this is what it led me to think. If 40 guys, half of which are beyond retirement age, can do that simply because together they've decided to heed a call of God, what can the two to three hundred of us who call this place home do if we were to heed what God is calling us to as well? What would this community look like if we opened ourselves fully to what God seeks to do in us and through us? What would you look like? And what does God want to do in you and through you? So you know what those monks think? They actually believe this. They actually believe that God changes lives. Do you believe that here today? That God changes lives. What do you come here with today? What brokenness? What regret? What failures? What do you come here with today? What fears? What obstacles? What impossibilities? What do you come here with today? What sense of inner resignation? What callousness? What, what, what spirits that just say, forget it? God changes lives. There is so much God wants to do in you. And there is so much God wants to do through you. And when I see church being is a group of people coming to hunger for that together to shed the brokenness, to experience the healing, to know the forgiveness, and to hear the call. And I tell you guys, if we would just seize it, God is going to rock this place. God's going to rock you. I dare you to trust him on it. You know, these next couple of weeks, I'm really looking forward to sharing some of the implications of this, some of the strategies of this, some of the the ways that, that we as a people of God can come together and see what God wants to do in us and through us right in our midst. I encourage you, be a part of this journey the next couple of weeks. Stay tuned 
in and open yourself. Guys, together, let's see what God has in store. All right?